0: Um, hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we just wanted to take a moment and do something special. We, we split this uh, feature into two parts, if you will. Uh, one part for Carolyn, one part with her husband, Aaron. And actually, uh, my wife was gracious enough to host uh, the podcast with Carolyn. Um, they get into some of the really, I don't know what would you would call it, the intimate details of their story. Uh, And it's a really heartfelt thing that I think is uh, worth a listen. And uh, if you're really struggling in this area or if you just don't even know anything about this area, uh, it's just a good story about persevering and trusting um, in things that are beyond your control. Uh, So give it a listen and they kill it and uh, have fun.
1: So, Carolyn, you're here today. Um, We've been friends for a while, Mm -hmm. Um, but... I think that you have a really cool story to share, and um, we thought hopefully at this point people have watched your video, and if they haven't, then I think this will be either just an additional piece to really round that out and get to know you a little better and the story behind everything, Um, but I guess we can start with you just telling us a little about yourself and your family and kind of... What shaped you to be who
2: you are right now and what you're doing today? Awesome. Well, thanks for interviewing me to get a little bit more details. This is kind of an exciting opportunity. So, a little bit about me I'm Carolyn. I am um, the oldest in my family. I have one younger sister. My parents are Stan and Diane. And I primarily grew up south of Fort Wayne, so in a small, kind of more rural community. Uh, I was very involved as like a young child athlete when I was in elementary school, I did dance, Girl Scouts, you know, all the fun things, 4-H, I was a 10-year h That's kind of a rule thing. Um, however, I did nothing with animals. <laughs> That's- What did you, what were you involved in if it wasn't animals? Yeah. So in 4-H, there's multiple facets that you can kind of do. Like there's woodworking, even cake decorating, Um, my mom is actually a family consumer sciences educator, which for some people may be more familiar with that as home ec teacher. And so she is very passionate about sewing and dabbles obviously a little bit in the cooking side of things. So a lot of my projects were more home oriented. So I did like consumer clothing, fashion review with my sewing projects. So I actually got to model all of my pieces, which was kind of fun for me. Um, and I was a fairly competitive in it. My mom's a little bit of a perfectionist in the sewing. So I would work on projects. If it wasn't right, we would redo it. But, uh, my 10th year in 4-H, I got to go to state and I got first runner up in my, um, project in fashion review and I won a trip to Washington, DC. So you were very involved in 4-H. Yes. And I think even in college, I did a sew with wool project and want a trip to San Diego. So it's kind of like been a fun... I don't know that people really realize how many opportunities there are with 4-H. They're kind of like, oh, that's for country folk. I don't know. (laughs) For you Southern Indiana people. Right. Um, So it was kind of fun. Scholarships, all sorts of awards. Um, So it was a good opportunity. That actually, I would say a lot of things that I did in my youth... Kind of shaped a little bit of the character that I have now. I'm a fairly outgoing person. Anyone who knows Aaron and I, he, they know that he's a little bit more reserved. Um, I'm the one that's always more forward and getting to know people, keeping us socially active. Um, but I guess that's kind of also partly too with my career now. I am I work in the healthcare field um, as a registered dietitian. And I love teaching classes, doing cooking demos, um, all of that. And a lot of that, again, I think stems from some of my 4-H experience, some of other things I did as a young child, because I have no fear of like stage presence or like speaking in front of people. And I love um, just teaching. So it's good. You mentioned a little bit
1: of your mom having some influence just in her job as far as home ec and the things that you did. How do you feel like your family shaped your
2: vision of a family. Oh, that's an excellent question. So, um my parents are amazing role models in the sense of just raising us in a faith-based home. We grew up, you know, every Sunday I had this close-knit community in a church, small rural church, and we went to Sunday school class. My parents went to Sunday school class while we were in Sunday school. I still remember like of all the couples that my, fr- my parents were friends with, their kids who were my age, I still have connections with to this day. Um, and I loved seeing those family bonds and stronghold and support and love just shown through and through. And so I knew one day when I found the person I was supposed to be with the rest of my life that God had intended for me, that we would wanna establish that foundation and love towards a family. I don't honestly know that I've ever imagined how many children I wanted or if I wanted boys versus girls. I just knew that at some point I would want a family. And um, I definitely think also the way that my family probably shaped us in that regard is my parents were very supportive of my sister and I growing up just to kind of explore whatever it was that we were passionate about. They were never too um, heavy or focused on us pursuing one thing. They would open the door to us, like exploring different avenues. Um, I was, you know, more interested in volleyball and basketball. And I ran track where my sister was like the complete opposite. Four years younger than me, she did soccer and uh, swimming. And then she was a phenomenal tennis player. And so they just, whatever our interests were, they were right there, biggest supporters. And I think that that speaks volumes moving forward in how Aaron and I want to support our family. And also, I mean, my parents are great influential people in my life, but I know Aaron had a great foundation as well with his family support and his parents are instrumental in like just the love that they show us now too. And so we are just very, very grateful for that, especially with what I'm sure we'll get into the journey we've went through in the last several years. Um, I don't know that we'd make it as far as we are today if we didn't have that foundational support from loving parents and siblings. Very cool. Yeah. So Erin, mm-hmm. when did you guys meet? Oh, Erin Ritchie. Okay, so it's kind of funny. Like when I really think back to it and we talk a little bit about this in the video um, that Jim puts together for us, but Aaron and I do know each other from our youth. Uh, he moved to Decatur, where I grew up, uh, eighth grade, and I remember him in my science class, and I laugh because I guess the term would be, like, he thought he was, like, hot stuff, like, you know. <laughs> oh, I know what you mean. Yes, and yeah. so he... We
1: went, all we all had that guy in uh, <laughs> that middle you school, know. high school. Yes. Yeah,
2: yeah, so... Um, being new, he was kind of like a popular boy. All the girls were so interested. And I, I I'm sure like friends of mine growing up like will giggle when they hear me explain this, but I was not like in the feminine sense mature at all. Like my nickname in middle school was Pee-wee from some of the guys because I was just this petite girl with bushy, crazy hair who <laughs> didn't know how to control it. Um tomboyish like the last thing was that boys would be interested in me so and I wasn't really all that like super intrigued about like dating or anything of that either I just was focused on my sports and other things that I was doing so there wasn't much of a relationship with Aaron until later on in schooling Um, he, uh, he and I ran track together our junior and senior year of high school and we joke because, like, we kind of nitpicked at each other, like growing up through the through that freshman year and later on in high school. And he, um, he and I high jumped together, and that's when we started to see that we had a few similar similarities. And we did um, campus life. Like he started coming to campus life because I was involved, um, and that was an awesome experience for us in high school, like he kind of came to a couple of things. And that's when I think we started to really be a little bit more interested. But I wasn't very easy to for him to pursue. Um, I probably made it way more challenging than it needed to be because I was just uncertain about we were both going to go to very different colleges. I really didn't know if I wanted to get in a serious relationship before going to college. Um, But he he did the pursuit in a very mature and just like sweet way. And so we went ahead and spent that summer together with our younger siblings. I feel like they were kind of like our little shadow figures did everything with us, but that's when we started to form a little bit of a foundation to then step into a long distance relationship for probably almost five years of our dating career before we got married.
1: So all throughout college, you guys went to different schools. That's correct. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, um, I did a health occupations class in high school, and so I knew the career path that I wanted to go on, and for the university that I chose to go to was a little bit more focused um, in that area, more like teacher-student ratio, and I liked the opportunities that it was going to present, and Aaron obviously pursued basketball in college with scholarship, and so there was opportunity for me to transfer, um, to do my degree at the university that he was playing at. But, um, I'm a little strong willed and a little more independent. And I was like, nope, if it's meant to be, it will work out, but I'm going to pursue my career and my, uh, focus here at, at the university that I went to. So yeah, we did two years, um, with at least four and a half hours apart. Another two years where it was just two hours apart. And then when we would have probably both been back home and close together, I did an internship in Chicago. So we were back to about three hours apart. And then the story unfolds that Aaron had the opportunity to play basketball in Australia. And that was um, the summer that he proposed before he went there, because that obviously would have been, you know, a whole half world distance apart of distance dating and that had a little bit more commitment to it. So when he returned back from Australia, we got married. So
1: how, what was the time difference between when you guys started
2: dating and then when you got married? Okay. So we got, we started dating in the spring of 2005. Our first official like boyfriend and girlfriend type of outing was prom And, um, we got married in 2011. So, yeah. A long time of (laughs) dating. Whatever that simple math is. And long distance dating. Right, right. Which they always say, like, distance makes the relationship grow fonder. Um, and I would honestly admit that that has probably a lot of truth of it for us. We were young when we started dating, And we had a lot of maturity to go through individually. And I'm kind of glad I was as independent as I was and wanting to pursue like my own path. Uh, We had our moments of needing to take breaks, exploring, you know, who we were individually and growing. Um, Some of that focus probably laid a little bit more of a foundation that prepared us for being married. And I would probably say like that instilled in us the distance really made us have to start focusing on communication and that then moved forward into um, just making our marriage a little bit to where the challenges that we've faced the last couple of years. um, I just think that we probably have been able to overcome some circumstances just because we're on the same page with communicating back and forth with each other.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I feel like people who do date for So long, like before college and then into college, it's really easy after to immediately be like, let's get married. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really cool that you guys were still able to be a little independent and grow individually kind of in your careers and what you want to do prior um, to getting married after that. So I think that's cool. Right. So at what point then did you guys start talking about having kids? Like how long into marriage was it? Yeah. Something that was of interest
2: well, so we did premarital counseling, which I know several people do before they tie the knot. And just to kind of give like a little bit of expectations, like where are you truly at on the same side of things and where are you going to see some struggles um, or some uh, conflict maybe as you start to merge your lives together. And one of the things that the, I think the first initial conversation, and again, as we were dating, we weren't really focused on um and i wasn't that big girl that was dreaming of like my perfect wedding day and like what my family was going to be like i was a little bit more career focused and just socially focused and just loving life and so um in our career, in our marriage counseling we had had a little bit of a conversation and Aaron comes from a long line of like large families um i think his dad is one of 8 and has several cousins, and he's just got a big family. So that was like, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to have a big family. And I'm like, whoa, I have to carry all of those. <laughs> Pump the brakes a little bit. I come from a family of two. Aaron has um, three other siblings, so he's four compared to my two um, first siblings. And then even my parents, you know, both have two siblings, and they all have kids, But and we're a close-knit, like, extended family but it's still smaller compared to like his large family. And so I love that about them because I love how much they love each other and how connected they are in like this large, big family. However, it was just kind of like, oh, I don't know that I've ever given any thought. Two maybe sounds good. That's maybe like a boy and a girl, you know, you just in that naive thinking that, you know, we can plan that way. So uh, that was the first time that we kind of started to talk about it. And that that was in premarital, like just right. initially just kind of having
1: realizing, like, mm-hmm. okay, Aaron might want a really big family and you hadn't even necessarily thought
2: about that at right. that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so then we did have a conversation though, because we did distance for so long. We knew merging together and being married and in the same place was gonna be like a lot of growth for us. Um, mostly because like at the time, my first job, I was living in a single apartment and it was small. And Aaron, for those that don't know him, is like six foot seven. Um, his clothing is large, his shoes are large, and my closet was already full. So to make room and space, um, we, we were just in a very confined area for that first six months of marriage. And then once we moved back to Fort Wayne, we got a two-bedroom apartment and felt like we had a little bit more space. But that first year of marriage was a lot of just growing and getting used to just being in the same place 24 7 with each other outside of the eight hours that I was at work.
1: In a small place?
2: Yes, in a small place at that. So, with that being said, we had kind of had the conversation. Like, we weren't ready to just start trying to have a family until like a few years of being married, of just getting to know each other as like a couple in the same place. So, we actually then kind of had this idea. Again, a little bit of naive thinking um, that we'll start trying when we turn 28. And that was ignited a little bit by a trip that we had with friends. And Aaron kind of had this little moment of like, oh, kids can go with you. You can still have fun. Cause he was a little bit of the one like, oh, I don't know if we want to start trying yet. And so
1: I was gonna ask, were you guys both on the same page of like wanting to wait a little bit longer or was one of you more? interested sooner than the other
2: right so I think that just because being a female and knowing like I would have to be going through the physical changes of carrying a pregnancy I am a very logical and like cerebral person and so I think through all of the details and he's more of like this happens and then this is the outcome and so not the details so I for sure was like 28's probably the latest that I want to start having like our first and then I'm thinking like, oh, we'll have this many years and then we'll try for our second. You know, that's when the planning started to come into, into my mind. And it was when we went on that vacation with friends that he was like, okay, this is feasible. Life isn't going to change that much when we have a child, which we all know it does change. Um, and for us, uh, life will slow down a lot. We're very busy individuals, but we... we um, chose then and when we were both 28 that's when we were gonna pursue um starting which we are both now 34 so as you can see um it was a few years ago yeah because that would be mm-hmm. you said you're 34 yes. as of today so happy birthday oh
1: thank you um so i mean like six years when you initially mm-hmm. kind of started being open and you right. know trying to have kids right so how long did you guys try kind of like the traditional way of mm-hmm. being, you know, we're just going to see what happens. How long How long was that?
2: Yeah. So as a female, and I definitely encourage like women to be um, advocates for themselves. Um, my mom had always encouraged my sister and I just to like establish with a gynecologist just to be doing like our feminine health checks for health and safety. So I was established with someone... And at my yearly checkup, she, I had told her, oh, we're going to start trying. And she had kind of went through, you know, we really encourage trying for a year. This is how you can know you're ovulating, you know, all the specific things. So, um, we did the traditional trying for a year. That's at the point where we went ahead and went in and she ran some testing because ultimately we checked all the normal boxes of, Individuals that are healthy shouldn't have very many barriers to being able to conceive naturally. So it was during the time that I actually had an ultrasound during one of her workups after a year of trying that um, they discovered that I had a cyst on my right ovary that was a characteristic of endometriosis, but they weren't confident because that really truly is only diagnosed with an exploratory surgery. There are symptoms that they can potentially say you might have this. But it's not truly diagnosed until you have exploratory surgery. So, she at that point recommended that we be referred to a reproductive endocrinologist, and then that's when we um, started doing a lot more intensive exploring as to what could be the cause of why we're not just um, conceiving naturally. I was gonna ask, kind of during that first year,
1: did you? What were you kind of feeling? Was like there ever moments of discouragement? Were you just kind of naive at that point? Like what kind of thoughts were going through your head?
2: So I'm sure several women, especially with the way that social media presents itself now, um, like when I was younger, there was never pressure with social media. As I've become an adult, there's, and I'm sure women do it more so than men, but there's that possibility of comparison. And Being already 28 and choosing not to try until we were like married for a few years, I'm seeing so many friends of ours that got married around the same time that we are that have one possibly on their second child. So as we're trying and then I may be late a few days, like kind of hopeful. And then you take that test and then it's negative and it never fails. You like start immediately or the day after that negative test um I would start to just start feeling a lot of pressure. Um looking back on it, I don't know that I was overly concerned. I think I was a little bit nervous like, "Oh, maybe I'm not getting like the timing of ovulation right." So, that's when I started talking to friends, and they would encourage like, "Oh, you could use these ovulation kits." Um or there's like the potential of um going and having like testing or different things done. And so that's when we like followed up with my gynecologist to explore more. So that's what initiated me having the ultrasound. So it was definitely a little bit of nervousness, but I don't think I was like that heavily thinking anything was wrong. I just felt like our timing might've been off. And so once then that we started with the reproductive endocrinologist doing more testing and everything coming back as normal and healthy, except for that one indication that I had a cyst on my ovary. Um, That's when I started to get a little bit more frustrated that it wasn't working for us and that it was so much easier for other women. So how long did it take
1: for you to get those results? Like at what point within the timeline did that show up?
2: Yeah, so the... The ultrasound um, showed the cyst on my ovary at about one year into the journey when we were with my just regular gynecologist. Um, when we did the reproductive endocrinologist, we did a lot more like blood tests. Uh, we did a couple things to test like um, Aaron's like sperm quality, uh, my egg quality. And then all of those things were still coming back normal. Uh, both of us were at health conscious like weights and our like, even our levels for, for me, they did blood work on my thyroid. Um, they looked at other hormonal levels to verify that they were all within a normal range. Uh, so, and they even were testing them at different times during my cycle to just validate things. They would do ultrasounds at different times to just check like that my ovaries were producing eggs. Um, and that was all with, cause we did start out in the beginning doing, um, a few medication re- like cycles where I would take an example of like a very popular one is Clomid where it enhances your ovulation and your egg quality and production. So there were some of those, um, cycles as well. And everything, again, just tracking wise looked completely normal, um, It wasn't until a year of doing all of that treatment that I did an exploratory surgery and was officially diagnosed with mild endometriosis, which they attempted to remove at that point in time. And we were encouraged to just keep moving forward with timed intercourse and treatments. And, um, we tried some IUIs, which is like an, another advancement in trying to help with conception and, um, It was more towards those failed attempts that I was starting to become a little bit more bitter or frustrated um, with the journey and not getting the outcome because we didn't really have this clutch reason to why it wasn't working. And I say that because through this journey, I have met women with endometriosis who conceive naturally. It's not uncommon for a woman who has endometriosis to conceive on their own without assistance or with minimal assistance. So that's why I was like, if this is our only barrier, why is it not working for us?
1: I was going to say, how did, you, how did you cope with that at that time? Because this was still a little bit earlier in the journey too. Mm-hmm. So like probably all of it was very new. Like what, right. were, what were you going through at that point? Like what were you thinking
2: about? yeah. So I have tried to do a little bit of like reflection into just looking back because I am um, probably notorious for not always allowing myself to feel feelings. Um, even like during, I think like early, like elementary aged, middle school and high school, I was able to just kind of turn that off and like focus on other things. And now that I'm in the medical field, there's a, there's like just that ability that I don't want to get too involved or invested in my patients to have too much of an emotional feeling for them. Like you have to, um, create that barrier so that you can provide good practice to them. And so because I have that ability, I think it's almost overreactive than in my own personal. Um, I would just kind of Think after, for example, um, a moment where we would have like a failed cycle. I would recognize it and be very angry or frustrated. But then I would try to just like bury some of those feelings and just like, but they suggested that we change this, this, and this. So maybe with those changes, it'll be successful. So like I always had something else to focus on to move forward. So I wasn't really allowing myself to fully feel the process I was just focused on what more could I do and some of that even like to an extent I think I don't want to say that I was doubting in my faith during that time but I will admit that I was really angry or frustrated with God because um, and it's And I know he was never punishing me, but it felt like that. Yeah. I
1: mean, how can it not feel that way when you don't have an explanation, Mm -hmm. especially
2: for someone who is so logical? You're like, why? Mm -hmm. So when there's no answers and things are just not going in the direction you want to, it's almost like I've always been the type of person that Based on a performance or the ability to, like for example, like if you're an athlete, you practice your shot over and over again so that then during that game, your performance is top notch and you're making those shots in those critical moments. Um, or, you know, like you're you're wanting to strive to do well in your grades to get that scholarship or to get that internship. And I worked really diligently and hard during like several moments in my youth to, to achieve things. And so I felt like I was putting the effort in, but the outcome wasn't happening. And that made me feel like I wasn't good enough in God's eyes, which I know again, like wasn't the, is not the case, but that's how I was feeling at the moment, and from month to month. Um, and so that's when I started to actually seek out and speak to other women who I knew had gone through infertility. Because at that point, we were diagnosed with unexplained infertility with my side caveat of having mild endometriosis. So, yeah. Because,
1: okay, so let's backtrack a little bit. You mm-hmm. went through some different options as far mm-hmm. as ways that you could get pregnant and those did not work. So then you decided to go the route of IVF. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you kind of seek out counseling before or during
2: the IVF treatments? Right. So as we were kind of going through the months of not being able to conceive naturally, I felt like I was dealing with everything on my own very well, which we just discussed, like, at points, obviously I was harboring a lot of feelings and didn't realize I wasn't expressing those. Um, into when we were trying and in, in having failed IUIs, that's when I actually went with a friend to a support, an infertility and loss support group that... Um, that actually meets at my church and is led by women who have gone through similar experiences. And so at that moment, that was the support I was using. And it wasn't just emotional support, but kind of knowledge as well for a woman to like learn about other diagnoses that could be present that I hadn't been tested for yet and to advocate for myself to get tested for those. Um, Also just... um, you know, ideas of like how to deal with the emotions or even some of, as a woman going through infertility, you don't, um, necessarily realize how easily a common situation could be an emotional trigger for you. So I know for Aaron and I, like it was, it was a moment like the beginning of our infertility journey, um, Right when we were starting some of the initial treatment, we both had grandfathers that passed away within like probably two weeks of each other. And it was already emotional enough to have lost them. But I look back on it now and I didn't realize how much I was also grieving. And obviously it's still emotional for me now. Um, I was very close with my grandparents. They were so awesome growing up. And I got to see how awesome they were and just loving and present they were with my generation. So all my cousins who had kids. And so I knew when they passed away with how hard we were trying to have our own kids that they were never going to meet my children It's so interesting, though. That, that is like a trigger for me still to mm-hmm. this day. Yeah. Because as, it's it's just it's almost, I guess like, odd in a sense that um, the anniversary of their deaths is a trigger to my infertility, which mm-hmm. is you know, it's just weird.
1: Um, but I mean if you probably didn't have like that group of women to like talk Mm -hmm. to about those things, right. How else you probably wouldn't have even known how much of a trigger it was for you that you were like carrying that with you.
2: Right. Absolutely. And it's, and so they also like, you know, just have gone through those moments of, you know, how do you handle the pure joy of your friend or sister or colleague expecting and wanting to support them in their baby shower and during their pregnancy, without, you know, feeling internally devastated that your own desires aren't aren't being fulfilled. So I 100% encourage people, like if you don't feel comfortable going to a group, finding other women in your life. My, my mom had friends that would reach out to me who um, suffered of, from infertility before having their children. And when my mom shared what Erin and I were going through, they would occasionally reach out to me. And that was always in just critical moments that I just needed that hope and just that support. And that was wonderful. So, um, I actually did not pursue individual counseling to work through things until later into our journey, um, after we had pregnancy losses. So the support group was what I did through our infertility up until we started IVF and it was after IVF was successful in helping us with implantation and pregnancy, but after I I experienced the pregnancy losses. Um, At different points in each pregnancy, that's when I noticed that I was harboring a lot of bitterness, and I did not want to get stuck in bitterness, and so that's when I sought out um, an infertility or just um, a reproductive counselor who helps women through infertility and losses.
1: Okay. hmm I know this is not, like, the fun part. Right. But you you mentioned some of the losses. Um, how many transfers did you go through in IVF, and what sort of losses or what sort of experiences um, did you guys
2: have with that? Right. So to kind of backtrack just slightly before I jump into that, um, we at different points, like just in conversation with friends and family and acquaintances, people have kind of asked like why we chose to go IVF, um, and not adoption at the time. And so there were a lot of conversations. There was a lot of praying. There was a lot of, um, just asking people, uh, different questions that had gone either route, uh, for us, because the only diagnosis that we had was my mild endometriosis. There was a lot of success rates for women to have IVF to still conceive genetic children or biological children as they are referred to. Um, so we still had this desire to have biological children and because we didn't think that there were any other barriers that we would experience, we went into the idea that IVF would be a way that we could um, experience that. So we also had a lot of conversations with people on how to do IVF ethically. And some people, I guess, like don't always think about that because there's a lot of parts to IVF that um, if you are a young female with great egg quality, When they give you your stimulant medications, you could have a great response in egg production. And that egg production can then turn into wonderful embryos, genetically normal embryos that um, are created because your husband has wonderful sperm count. Um, And that could put you in a situation potentially where if you do an initial transfer and conceive... And let's say your first conception is twins or triplets, which is a little bit higher chance with IVF, you are then put in the situation that you have a started life force, these embryos frozen, um, and you have to make a decision on what you're going to do with those if you're not prepared to have more children with using those. Um, So when we went into it, we knew that there was a potential that I could have a good egg response, and I did. Um, My first egg retrieval, we had um, 21 eggs, which is a really phenomenal, um, I can honestly say like towards the end before my retrieval, I was like, I think my ovaries, they say can be the size of lemons. Like you're so uncomfortable with the large quantity they can grow, which is a whole nother matter and just how that makes you feel. But um, we had made the decision that we only wanted a certain amount of those to be um, fertilized, because we, given the ratio of how many could become embryos, we still wanted to make sure that I was able to carry all of those at some point. So from our first egg retrieval, we actually had eggs that were frozen, and then we had um, six genetic or six embryos that were created from that. So um, because we did not genetically test our embryos the first round. We were able to transfer two at a time, and that again puts you at risk for multiples. Um, I had a few transfers that just didn't have any implantation, so um, I was grateful that I was able to carry those embryos because again they were our genetic coding. we and we wanted to be able to for me to be able to carry those, and um, during one of the transfers, one of the embryos did not make it through the thawing process. So we had lost that one, which is a whole different kind of devastating matter because that's like a chance of hope that you lost in a potential child that you didn't get to carry. So I kind of had to grieve that as well. But um, from that first egg retrieval, we had um, four total transfers. And out of those four transfers... One ended up being a chemical pregnancy, which just means that one of the embryos did start to implant but did not fully develop into a fetus, um, but is still a loss. And then after I had another procedure to explore some things, um, that fourth transfer, which was actually some of the eggs that we had frozen that would be considered a fresh transfer. There's a difference between frozen and fresh transfers, but um, we fertilized those eggs and then so many days later, five days, five to six days later, we transferred those and that was our first pregnancy. So with that first pregnancy, um, it was already kind of questionable when I went in for my two week, 14 day HCG level test It was low and they kind of mentally prepared me like if this doesn't grow um, the way that we're wanting it to replicate, um, you may, you know, this may be an early loss. And so we didn't, after going through one chemical pregnancy, we just figured it was going to be like that. And so when it replicated, we were shocked and it continued to replicate and we were excited because this was like the first time. And... At this point in our timeline, this is after five years of trying. So this is our first pregnancy in five years. And we were pretty ecstatic to walk into that seven-week ultrasound and to see that little life force um, heartbeat on the screen. The heartbeat was strong. The baby was measuring small. And um, I could tell there was some hesitation in our doctor just because of the growth and he wanted to make sure that the numbers were correct. And they were, um, he at the time didn't want to say anything because he knew just how excited we were that things worked. Um, so we actually, that was during my first pregnancy, we actually celebrated mother's day with, um, family and friends and I got to celebrate mother's day while caring, our first child and um it was actually the Monday after Mother's Day that we went in for our nine week ultrasound and um the baby's heartbeat wasn't present any longer and so that was our first experience with um a loss and we were approached you know (laughs) how we wanted to pursue passing that loss um and I don't wish it upon anyone who struggles with infertility to then have to go through miscarriages because it's just that much more difficult. Um, but I will say I'm grateful that I'm a healthy young adult that was able, and it was so early on in the pregnancy, that we were able to, um, and Aaron was able to be home with me, for me to pass that at home and it's hard. And again, being in a community with women, that was so crucial in that moment, because I had women to call and to ask, like, what should I expect? Um, Because that's something that a lot of women don't share, is what to prepare for yourself if you're going to have a miscarriage at home. And so just um, some of that support was very critical in that time. Um, and it was just, yeah, I just looking back on it, it was, it was tough. Um, I unexpectedly had to take time off from work and that was really hard too, because I just, I find so much, um, just like not necessarily joy, but just happiness in my job. And, um, I am very dedicated to the, the patients that I see. And I, felt terrible, so I was carrying this guilt of not being able to be there for them, and needing to be at home, and it was hard for me to sort through those emotions of needing to just take care of myself for that time frame. Um, but we also, like after that loss and meeting with our reproductive endocrinologist, we knew we still had more egg retrievals, even though that was our last transfer for that first round, and we. All walked away or walked into that room kind of like, well, pregnancy is possible. We just have to understand why our child didn't grow past nine weeks. And so at that point, that's when he shared with us that it was more than likely a genetic abnormality that did not allow the child to grow because of the growth um, and with the HCG level starting out so slowly from the very beginning. So we had made more changes medically to then pursue a second egg retrieval. And this time around, we chose to do the genetic testing and to get that confirmation that the embryos that we were going to transfer were healthy. Um, that, again, for women going through IVF is a whole nother. Um, I guess, crucial conversation you have to have with your spouse and have a full understanding of what you're going to do if that genetic coding comes back with the possibility of an abnormality suggested of a physical or um, mental disability for your future child. Um, We were blessed in the sense that they all came back genetically normal and they're 97% accurate per the science. Um, But we went into it knowing that if there was still a risk, we were still going to transfer and carry those embryos. Um, so, because we looked at it if we were pregnant naturally and um, our child was had some form of genetic abnormality that suggested a physical or a mental disability in the future, we were prepared to parent that child. So we knew we would want to do that same thing with IVF as well. Uh, yeah, so... Things that you never expected you'd have to think about. No, it is, um, if I wasn't someone who like was (laughs) detail-oriented, I don't know if it was counterproductive for me or not. I felt like I was over sometimes researching things that almost made me more anxious or just nervous about things. But it also was something that made me more prepared on how to proceed into IVF and what we wanted to focus on. Um, but it, it definitely probably created some tension with some relationships we had just because as Christians, we do believe in God and we believe in his ability to perform miracles and every, um, child and pregnancy is a beautiful miracle. And we, we also believe that science is here to assist people, um, and, Part of that probably comes from my medical background um, and knowing that um, as, as an individual who helps people with nutrition, you know, I see individuals going through cancer treatment who physically are not able to nourish their bodies with oral nutrition. And we have a medical advancement for a feeding tube that is helping them to get the nourishment they need to proceed through treatment, cancer, you know, chemo, radiation therapy, for them to um, try and beat cancer. And so those medical advancements, I believe, are things that God has provided for our you know, population to be able to, to um, try to beat this broken world. And infertility is just one of those brokennesses that we experience in this world. And so that's why we were okay with the medical advancements. Now there is a point, and we shared that earlier as a couple, that surrogacy was beyond the medical advancements that we wanted to do because we still wanted our biological children to be carried through me. So, um, yeah, those were kind of, but those are hard conversations to have with people that you love and just difficult conversations to even have with your spouse and to be on the same page with because you could have very different upbringings and different ideas and you need to make sure you're on the very same page going through this journey because it is a rough rough journey. So, um yeah, do you want me to talk a little bit about our last embryo transfers and kind of what we experienced yeah, with that? Definitely. Um so as I mentioned, we had two additional egg retrievals if we wanted to pursue those. Um After our first miscarriage, again, we were hopeful that my body could conceive and that we were going to be able to have a biological child through a second ache retrieval. So
1: after the first one, you still had feelings of optimism kind of going
2: into this next next one. Yes. Um, So we, uh, again, like I had done, there's a few different processes, procedures that they do some of them, um, one of them is called an ERA. It's basically an endometrial lining receptivity test that they do to make sure that the timing. And I tell you, like, looking back on it, some of my friends that conceive so naturally, I'm like, do you have any idea how perfect the environment has to be for that egg and that sperm and everything to be so perfect? Um, but I didn't realize that just
1: in the things that I've heard from you and your story, I had no idea how complicated
2: it it all really was because it does it can just happen so easily. And it makes it that much more of a beautiful thing that it is a miracle by God. Like it's just things are so intricate and detailed and um, beautiful in that sense. But it also for a woman who's suffering through infertility, like it's so frustrating because just one of those components could be off and it just doesn't work for them. And so, um, but for the most part, again, all of those tests come back normal for Aaron and I. So we still don't know why everything was as challenging as it was. So we pursued the second egg retrieval. This time around, um, I didn't have as big of a response for eggs. And so we fertilized all of them. Um, It was right around the same amount that we chose to fertilize the first time. And we got three embryos that time compared to six. And so um, again, knowing that we wanted more than one child, we were excited with three embryos because we were hopeful that now that we had one pregnancy at the end of that first egg retrieval, we were going to be able to hopefully conceive with the first embryo and have the potential to conceive more in the future if we weren't able to conceive naturally and we would still go back and transfer those embryos. So, um, the first embryo transfer actually resulted in a another chemical pregnancy. So, um, and I look back on it, I remember because at that point I was really struggling on how much IVF was impacting my social and just my like physical well-being in a sense. I felt like it was dictating my physical workouts. Like I was able to get into a consistent workout and then I was on a regimen with my medications on steroids and injections and just everything that I like didn't have the energy or I was supposed to be doing low impact activity and it just was getting frustrating and so but at the same time the doctors are encouraging you to like stay consistent in your activity and even after um conception like some will say you know take it light but we still want you to be moving because that's your normal rhythm um And so that weekend, within the two-week wait, I had ran a 5K, very slow. I'm not a big runner to begin with. People know that about me. But um, I carried a lot of guilt with that because I felt like that chemical pregnancy was because I jogged a 5K. -hmm. And um, even with the doctor telling me, like, that is not the case, like, you are physically active, like, your body, your environment, they are used to that um and i know women who like you know they go 3 months before they even realize they're pregnant right. with doing physical activity. So logically i knew that wasn't necessarily a thing, but every little detail was negative for me. Like i just felt a lot of shame, or i was feeling a lot of guilt. And um that's when again some of these feelings are kind of like harboring and that bitterness is happening. Um so it was after that chemical pregnancy, we did one more procedure, a hysteroscopy. And again, all of these procedures are physically on me. And Aaron, it's starting to wear on Aaron, um, because he was having a hard time seeing me have to go through all of it um, physically and emotionally. And so I think that's some of his feelings that he was like thinking in his mind, but not necessarily communicating to me Um, but we knew we still wanted to transfer these last two embryos. So, and we were hopeful that we were going to get a biological child out of at least one of them. So we actually then transferred the second one, um, this round. And I remember, um, that was at the beginning of 2019 and it was like, right, um, like at the end and I was uh, at the end of a month and um everything was like so perfect I mean I did all of the like extra things like I was doing acupuncture you know like there's all these wise tales of like eating your McDonald french fries after you have an IVF transfer and like there's magical powers did with you my... do that I didn't do that no. one but there were other ones um like pineapple juice like there's bromine in the pine like core of the pineapple like there's just all of these wise tales and And, like, when you're in that community and you're on these, like, social media networks and you're researching and you're reading all this stuff, you're like, how much actual research is there to support that? Maybe that's the thing I need to do. But ultimately, at this point, Aaron and I were just praying and, like, we were just telling God, like, if this is meant to be, please allow it to happen type of situation. And um, so... That was like textbook perfect IVF transfer. Uh, 14 days. My levels came back like spot on. Um, replicated beautifully. Uh, because I had the miscarriage back in 2018, the um, doctor wanted us to do weekly ultrasound. <clears throat> so I started that um at week seven. And growth of the baby measurement as well as the heartbeat were so strong and we were just ecstatic. Um, We went in week eight and everything again was awesome. Week nine. So we're going back. Were you weekly. like stressed at all during this or were you mostly like you were like this right. is it? Like this, yeah. is, this, this is, is good. Yeah. Because it was so different than the first pregnancy and because we had made so many other changes, I was on a very new protocol that they had implemented, um, that was anti-inflammatory, blood clot reducing, like just all the precautions. So I really didn't have any doubts like at all in my mind. Um, and we were, we were just excited. Like Aaron was encouraging me, like allow yourself. Cause I, I was in a lot of shock with the first pregnancy because we had tried so long, like up to five years before that happened that I was like, oh, like nervous and in shock. And I didn't do anything like exciting for that pregnancy. You like didn't allow yourself to necessarily feel that either. Yes. So this time I like contacted a friend who was selling her maternity clothes and I was like, I'll buy those. And like, you know, like I did all the things to allow myself to feel that pregnancy. And we got to our 10 week ultrasound and i remember walking into there in like i mean we have been working with them now for 4 years these nurses and doctors like know us through and through like have personal relationships with us like on you know just different things
1: <coughs> no you can take a drink
2: thanks um and so with them knowing us so well, like everyone was just so excited because at 10 weeks is when they usually discharge you back to your gynecologist or your labor and delivery doctor, the person who's going to follow you through the remainder of the pregnancy. And we're just like, you know, like, oh, this is so bittersweet. We've worked with you guys for so long. We don't want you to leave, but we're so excited for you. And then we walk into the ultrasound room and do the normal, um, um, it just, our, our doctor, I could just see it on his face and I noticed it like there wasn't the little flicker on the ultrasound screen. Um, and we just sat there and he sat there for like 15 minutes of just silence because none of us anticipated that at all. And there was zero rationale for it. Um, We just still are kind of um, not sure what happened. And so um, we needed time after that. So we um, lost that pregnancy um, near March or at the end of March in 2019. And that was when we just needed time, like a break from all of it. Um, to allow ourselves just to really contemplate and think like what else we needed to look into. Um, the doctors really, because everything was for the most part coming back normal for us, they just really weren't sure. And I was doing a lot of other things like um, on my nutritional front, trying to be anti-inflammatory approaching and just different, um, you know, the acupuncture and just different things um, that they... they we're encouraging us just to take time. And then if we wanted to come back to transfer our last embryo to allow us to do that and we weren't going to make any changes, we were just going to pursue and, and move forward. Um, what did you guys do in that time off? Yeah. So um, as like physically, as I was healing, it actually worked out well because again, like I hated the idea of taking time off from work
1: mm-hmm.
2: and the miscarriage Um I wanted to process that again at home. Um, and so we took time off in that second week, we were actually scheduled to go with my family to Gatlinburg. Um, and it was difficult, um, to be like, you know, cause we were looking forward to that vacation. I actually had planned because we were at 10 weeks, we were planning on taking, um, pregnancy announcement photos. Mm-hmm. So my vision of what that vacation was going to be like was now totally different. Right. Um, and that's how infertility and losses just, you know, make their imprint in a negative way on your life. And it's just um, trying to figure out how to move forward from that. And so I still didn't want to cancel that trip because I was like, I'm not going to let this control my outlook and, and um, experiences in life. And so we went on vacation and we still got to enjoy time with family. Um, And that was my second week of being able to kind of heal before going back to work. But going back to work was a lot more difficult for me. Um, I was just more emotional. And in the past, I was able to be able to separate my personal life and work and be able to do a good job and then pick back up. And I have this hour commute and I just... Would listen to worship music because I was trying to have God's presence in my life, but I was, I was angry and I was very distant because I did not understand why we lost that pregnancy. So that was where um, I I um, sought out the counseling, the individual counseling at that point. Um, because I knew that something was wrong when other parts of my life were really being impacted and I didn't feel like I was myself. I could tell that something else was off. Um, but I was still able to put up a really good front for people. Um, and we decided Aaron was like, we need to take time for ourselves and that's when we took a trip to Europe, um, took two weeks to kind of explore and just to become like a couple again without stress and without, you know, dictated times of like treatments and appointments and just living and loving life and enjoying food. <laughs> we, it,
1: I was going to say, I mean, over that period of time, like that really must have impacted your relationship too. Like, right. How I was gonna ask you, that, like, how was that for you and Aaron? Yeah. Just kind of dealing
2: with that, and how did
1: that change your relationship?
2: At Absolutely. All? Yeah, no, it, um, infertility has a huge, significant weight on couples. And for us, I don't think that initially it wasn't too much of a stressor, but then once we started getting heavier into treatment, obviously there's a lot of financial component. So we had to be on the same page with like our budget and just making sure that, you know, like th- this $500 medication that you're not just getting once, but multiple times within a short few month time frame that you're prepared for that. Because unfortunately in the state of Indiana and my employment does not have infertility coverage. And so, for some couples, they're fortunate enough to have that, but um, we had to be conscious of that and... So you have this financial strain on your relationship. And in addition to your intimacy is significantly interrupted because if you're in the middle of a certain cycle, you can't just spontaneously be intimate with each other. And um, then when you're trying other methods, like you are so on pressure to have sex at a certain time frame. And it's it takes a little of the romance out of it. Exactly. Yeah. So um, there was a lot of wear, but... Again, like just somehow um, God would continually make his presence known like with our relationship. There would be like big moments of like a service we attended on a Sunday that would help like ground us and make help us to communicate on something Um, or, you know, like someone when I was like emotionally just like on the brink of like ice and just feeling like it was going to fall or I was going to just. Be upset about things like um. I would just have like this key moment of where I just felt God's presence, and in, in one way or another, so God was still present. I just was frustrated in that, probably because of our faith and our foundation, and that that's what kind of helped our relationship to keep moving forward with all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you guys got to go on the trip. Yes, the trip was awesome. Um, we made a determination that that fall, we were going to make the choice of, um, transferring our last embryo. And that was kind of for us putting all of our eggs in one basket, (laughs) not to say a pun or anything, but (laughs) with IVF, that's kind of funny. Um, but we were at the point of, um, we have kind of exhausted what we felt physically we could do. In addition to, um, medical assistance, and we wanted to approach that still with everything. I changed one one thing um, with my treatment plan, but we had given it to God. And I actually remember Aaron was at a league. I think he had basketball league that night, and um, I went to a prayer and worship night uh, for the city, and. Uh, Waymaker was a, it was the first time I'd ever heard Waymaker last fall and it's a worship song, um, that came over and it was just very calming for me because I was very anxious and nervous going into that transfer on, and my prayer to God was if this is not meant to be, um, then please don't let it implant because I did not. Want to go through another miscarriage? Yeah. And I felt peace about going into that last transfer um, that night, and I felt so confident, and we went into it because I felt like if it was gonna implant, that that child was going to be one that we were gonna hold, and we were successful. With our third pregnancy. But um nine weeks later, after seeing their heartbeat at the seven week ultrasound, um, I requested not to do ultrasounds every week because I was I just could tell I was so anxious with this one. After a loss, you're just kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop. Yeah. Um and it's really difficult to be excited about it because you're just so nervous. You have this difficult, you're, like, in this middle zone of wanting to have joy because you are conceiving, you're carrying your child, and then at the same time, like, you're just so nervous that you're going to lose it. And at that nine-week ultrasound, our heart, the heartbeat wasn't present again, and um, I still I'm working through this still because this was still fresh. I mean, our last miscarriage was just this past November in 2019. Um, uh, and I kind of have this guilt that I was impacted so much more significantly by the second miscarriage than the third one emotionally because we, had, we were so blindsided by right. that miscarriage. The third one, because... I just was so nervous that it was gonna happen again, and when it did, it was almost like it just my worst fear came true, and I knew it was gonna happen yeah. and so um,
1: how did you how did you cope with that like in your faith too? Mm-hmm.
2: So I remember um... I had asked Aaron to just watch service from home for a few weekends because I was just, I was so emotional that at that point, Waymaker was becoming popular in churches worship. And when that song came on, I was torn because it gave me such peace going into my transfer. And I was so confident that he was going to create this miracle for us. And then, um, so it was kind of this like negative reminder for me. Um, and I was frustrated, but at the same time I was also starting to see my counselor consistently that it was good timing that I was able to start processing it and focusing on what I needed to do for me personally to still keep a relationship alive in my faith. Um, We, there were times that I would just sit there and Aaron would either pray over me or um, we would read scripture together, but it was mostly him reading it over me because I, he could tell I was very much in the angry and frustrated stage of grief, um, because I just, I was really struggling with why would you allow me to have the hope of a third pregnancy and it not flourish? So, um, we, we definitely, um, through this entire process have leaned on people's faith throughout the entire time when we were feeling broken. Um, it's been interesting. we can't have mm-hmm. it all the time yeah. our own. Absolutely. <laughs> Sometimes we, we break a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. And I was actually listening. One thing that um, I found to be very helpful for me throughout a lot of it was to tune in to different podcasts on my drive to work because I have 60 minutes or so in the car that I would listen to other individuals who were going through tragedy and loss and how they kept their faith. Um, And that was, like, I found those podcasts, like, two to three years ago. And so they, so having some of that kind of in my memory bank and, like, speaking truth to me through different times um, kind of helped me to remember Like God was present the entire time. And as I look back on it now, I mentioned it earlier, there were so many small little moments that he made his presence known through another person or a moment that happened in time. And that helped a lot. But, um, when I couldn't bring myself to reading my Bible at the time, like I would at least have worship music on in the background to try to have that connection. Um, and I kind of would reach out and there were a few of my friends that sent me scriptures at different moments that would help me. And then, um, I would just kind of build upon there some of my journaling, um, if I were to look back at it, I'm sure there was a lot of anger and different things, but I remembered someone telling me that that's a true relationship. A relationship is having all feelings, not just happiness and like feeling loved by God like having that anger and that frustration and communicating that um, because he is my father and and going through that was um, very healing for me to be able to communicate those things because i think for so long i had harbored those during that whole journey yeah mm-hmm.
1: it's probably an ongoing process of
2: oh absolutely coping. yeah and
1: healing Absolutely. That's, Um, they'll probably be continual. mm -hmm. Right.
2: Oh yeah. Um, infertility is something that, you know, as I look through this kaleidoscope of like life, um, I see so many women who have been victorious going through infertility treatment and they have that beautiful outcome and that miracle. Um, and you know, like some of their infertility might kind of be like distant, you know, that doesn't affect them as much. Um, but then you have, um, women who have never had any issues with infertility, but have experienced pregnancy loss and then had another child later on. And as a woman who, um, has unexplained infertility with recurrent pregnancy loss with no biological outcome of a child, um, it's something that, I'm still working through now on how to grieve that and to process that and not to feel shame and and guilt um, or some of those emotions that we easily let ourselves get stuck in. Um, it'll for sure be probably a lifelong process. But as we pursue um, building our family in other ways, i'm I'm hopeful that I will be able to, keep those separate with the counseling that I'm going through because I never want my infertility journey to negatively impact um, my children in the future. And so that's something that I'm being mindful of. And I want to make sure that I'm conscious of that as I continue to work on those feelings. Before we talk about what
1: the next step is, Mm -hmm. I have a question because I feel like from people who are on the other side of the table or even people who have gone through some sort of loss or infertility, how can someone as a friend like support someone going through that? Because I think yeah. it's hard to always to like know what to say or um, how to love someone um, just because right. you know that you're not feeling what they're feeling and going through what they're feeling. So what mm-hmm. would you recommend to people who are
2: walking along alongside someone going through that? yeah. I I can honestly say I think that some of my family and friends have experienced that, um, feeling very lost and lost in how to support me. Um, And one thing that I would encourage is if you're going, if you have a friend that's going through that, but you know someone else who's gone through it, um, to ask those other individuals who like have been open and have gone through it. What you could do to support your friend, um, if you know you're wanting to know some different ideas, but for me personally, the things that were just key was just, um, I really didn't need people to say anything or to say that it was gonna be okay or um, I just it was it was helpful for me to just talk, yeah, um, just to share. And for them to listen, Um, honestly, too, I think that there were small tokens that I received throughout my journey. Some of them were, you know, spiritual related. Some of them were just like um, flowers. Occasionally, Um, we have a couple things that are memorials for some of the different losses that we experienced through our journey, that we have throughout our home that are just kind of reminders of our children. And the, those are beautiful things, um, that I can just kind of, when I am triggered with an emotion and I want to feel that emotion and I want to remember that child, like I have the opportunity of sitting and seeing that, um, reminder. And so there's kind of like little keepsakes like that, that if people want to invest, but I think too, it's just letting them know that you're there and that you love them and that they're loved. I think that because when you're going through infertility, it can be very lonely experience and you can feel like you're not being loved. And I think that that is something that is just helpful and you don't really need to say more than that.
1: I think that's helpful. Yeah.
2: I think, yeah, I know that's something that
1: I always just struggle with knowing how to support mm-hmm. people, um, yeah. particularly in
2: situations where there is tragedy and loss. So, right. I think that sometimes too, um, just in in everyday conversation, women who are going through infertility, there's obviously, we mentioned earlier, triggers that can be said. Um, and some people may make statements. And some of that responsibility is a little bit on the individual going through the circumstances that are being triggered. But sometimes I think, too, people need to kind of educate themselves in regards to what are appropriate things to say in public Um two friends that you don't know, their full circumstances. Um, I mean, I have older patients that have the sweetest intentions and they see like a picture of my couple and I, and then they recognize that my age and they're just like, oh, do you have any children? And not that that should ever be a trigger for someone, but it, for me, um, I do have children. I have three of them in heaven, but how do you politely say that to them yeah. um or say something that oh no not yet you know like you've been trying for 7 years that's not right. <laughs> not yet you know like um so it it's it's a challenge it's hard so i think that that's something that um just being a conscious individual and trying not to say anything that that is offensive to someone but at the same time as a woman that's going through infertility I have to show grace to some people because they have well intentions and they never mean to say anything that is hard for me to go through like emotionally but um I just have to show them grace
1: yeah and I I think if anything it's a bit of a challenge at least for like the female community Mm -hmm. of just being Conscious and sensitive that there are so many of us who either have gone through it, will go through it. Um, I mean, I know there are a lot of people who do have one child and then they struggle with infertility after Mm -hmm.
2: that,
1: Mm -hmm. Um, and just like not knowing where people are on that. I think that that is something that like our generation can be more aware of. Not that we can't be excited about when pregnancy does happen, or but just in our conversations with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like not putting the expectation of like, Oh, are you guys trying to have kids? Are you going to have a kid soon? Like, Mm -hmm. I think that that's definitely something that I've been more aware of lately. Um, Mm -hmm. just being sensitive to that. Absolutely. Um, So next, what are, what are you guys planning to do? What's next in the journey?
2: So something that, um, Aaron and I had talked about, like, Well, before we even knew that we were going to have the infertility struggle, um, we had always kind of jokingly had talked about, um, you know, what, what would life look like, um, on how we could love people in our community. Um, and, and we had known people from our past that had done adoption, but, it obviously became a lot more real that that might have to be a possibility for our future once we started our infertility journey. And so um, several years ago before before we had gotten married, Aaron had gotten connected in a church within the community that has a passion for orphan care. Made that through foster care, adoption, um, safe haven homes, like for families. And so that... that um, probably was instilling a foundation that at some point we would have a community to pursue adoption um, before we even knew that that was going to be a possibility. And so um, once we started into our infertility journey, that was always a conscious thought that if we are not able to have biological children, we would probably pursue an avenue of adoption. But we didn't want... To put the pressure on, that was the only way to develop our family. We just wanted to focus on biological children first and then to share the love that we had in that foundation and everything that our families instilled in us, to other children. So um, we, um, again, going into that third embryo transfer, had that conversation again. And we knew back in um, September when that was happening, if if this works or doesn't work, um, we will pursue adoption in the future. Like it was kind of a, a thought, but we just hadn't thought too much into, will it be international? Will it be domestic and all that fun stuff? Because that's a whole nother thing that I was still focused on IVF and emotionally I could not put my mind through all of that. Um, we could probably do a whole nother podcast about that later
1: on about, uh, what, what this next journey is going to look like. But what you do know now is that
2: we are officially pursuing domestic adoption. Um, and if the situation is right, we would love to um, pursue open adoption with that birth parents or mother.
1: How did you guys come to that decision? Was yeah. it Was it a choice or is it, I mean, I know that there's a lot of different kind mm-hmm. of laws depending on, where you live, but how did you guys come to that? Right.
2: So, um, after our loss back in November, we took time again to grieve all of that. And Aaron had been way more open to wanting to pursue adoption. If it were up to him, we probably would have been pursuing adoption at the same time that like starting that process at the same time that we were doing IVF, because there are some couples out there that do that. Um, my, Mind could not comprehend all of that at once. It's a, it's a lot to take in. Right. Yeah. And so he was patiently waiting for my heart um, to open and be ready for that process. And through um, working with my counselor and moving forward, I felt like I was at a good place to move forward in the adoption discussion. And as we um, started that process earlier this year, um, at the beginning of 2020, we had... Um, really tossed around the idea of what does open adoption potentially look like. And we had reached out to a couple um, individuals that we knew that have some version of open adoption going on with the children that they've adopted now. More, majority of the time, international adoptions are going to be closed. And um, I just thought, how wild of an idea would it be that you're not just loving this child that needs um a warm and inviting and healthy and you know like beautiful environment to grow up in but you have the opportunity of also like positively impacting this woman who so graciously made it a difficult decision for you to raise her child and um that for us has been a discussion that we've really had to like fully think about because it's also extremely scary and nerve wracking for us to think about that. And we have no idea what that's going to look like. Um, but we're just praying that whoever um, we're matched with, and um, if that process comes to completion, that it'll be um, a good environment if that's, if that's what God's intentions are for us. That's really cool. And i never really thought about the perspective of it being
1: a way to also love the mom as well mm-hmm. too. So that is cool to like give her
2: that opportunity. Um, and that's, and that's something that I think, um, for some generations has been a very controversial topic on open versus closed adoption. And, um, I think we've, we know people that have been adopted and we've gotten their take on how, how that looks. And we've talked to people that are going through the adoption process now. Um, and, and again, with our church support, um, several of them have done international adoption and, and it's, a um, it's one thing, it's one thing to see um, just the beauty of how they're incorporating both their culture and everything into their adopted children's lives. Um, but one way I think about being able to do that is by actually knowing the family that they came from and being mm-hmm. able to help them embrace that.
1: Yeah. So what is, what does the timeline look like now? Like, yeah. do you, do you have a date of when it could happen or is it, could it be a year from right. now? What so, is the...
2: so, um, the adoption agency that we're working with, um, has, um, had a higher need for, for um, safe and approved families. And so we actually, it's kind of crazy quarantine and COVID-19 kind of worked in our favor. Uh, we chose to really dive into exploring adoption agencies once we decided to do domestic open adoption, um, back in May and we committed to an agency in June, um, And with everything that's been going on, we've been able to have time with our social, usually busy lifestyles. We had time to just get everything together for our home study. And so um, June, we started with our agency and uh, just a few weeks ago, we completed our home study and we are now just waiting on the final approval to become active The wait after you become active, um, a lot of that, there's so many different components that have to come in line for you to be matched with, um, a prospective birth mom. And so, um, I have no idea how long that could take, but it's kind of wild to think that we could be waiting for a potential placement, um, possibly by this coming September. So that's crazy. Yeah. It's exciting, yeah. but um, I also have to remember to be very patient because um, I, mean, I like you, to You've this. been patient this long. I know you have it in you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so we are excited, um, and people have been so supportive of us making this decision, and um, we just feel the love from everyone. Uh, we've felt the love through the entire infertility process, and now with the adoption, we just know that whoever um, our child is going to be in the future through adoption, they are going to be well-loved. Last
1: question. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, and it's an easy one. Just what are you most excited about being a mom potentially in the next year? Like within the year, what
2: is that? So it's kind of crazy. One thing with us being close with our siblings Is that as they've like had children, we have gotten to be like the cool aunt and uncle or auntie and uncle. And I have loved just getting to um, help in a way, like positively being influences on their lives and getting to do fun activities with them. And I think it's – I don't know if this is odd or not, but I'm just so excited to have a child to have cousins. Like it's just – Um, because I love them so much. I can't wait, because they are so sweet. Um, They've been praying for auntie and uncle to have a child this entire time as we've been going through this journey, and um, they were just as excited about our pregnancies, because obviously our families knew with all of our transfers and when they were successful, and um, it's just been you know, it's one of those things where I think that they are going to be awesome, big cousins, and I just can't wait to see my family, and we even have, like, cousins that have little ones, and we just are always all together, and I just, I'm excited to have one to enter into the mix. And get to see them grow up together. Yes. Um, but I also am just so looking forward to seeing Aaron as a dad, because yeah. he's a phenomenal human being that's so great with kids, and... Just today, I was reminded of that, Um, and I just, I can't wait. That's really cool. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks, Carolyn. Thanks for coming in on your birthday and talking and walking through a pretty emotional and kind of journey that has been a lot of ups and downs. But I'm super excited for you guys.
2: Thank you. Hopefully soon, praying that you don't have to wait too long. Right. And I definitely... Don't take it lighthearted that this is going to be an easy journey. We know that it's going to be so, um, have its ups and downs as well. But, um,
0: I don't know, we are so excited! Thank you. Um, the girls crushed it, uh, but Caroline actually wanted to come on and say something special, kind of as a close. Uh, in regards to their story. Um, obviously, all the processes that they went through uh, might not have been successful, but there is hope at the end of the story uh, with adoption. Um, and you just, Carolyn, you really had something special that you wanted to share.
2: Yeah, thanks, Jim. Um, ultimately, as Jim just mentioned, I think when you get out there on social media or hear of stories There's so many uplifting successes of uh, women who have gone through this journey and come out on the other side with a child. And so for Aaron and I, we're kind of um, that lower percentage that didn't make it to the other side with an infant. However, we were able with family and friends and with our faith, able to persevere and look at those losses that could have been looked at as rejection ultimately. Um, but then found the ability to, uh, come up with redirection for us. And, and, um, one of the things that, um, Amanda and I talk about in our podcast is just, um, all of the different resources that I had used and, um, The whole reason to why I wanted to be vulnerable and somehow found the courage to share those intimate details of our story was to let women know that don't go through this alone, you know, find that community, Um, be sure to reach out. And I want to be one of those resources potentially for women. I am by no means an expert, but I can help people know like how to advocate for yourself through the journey. But then also like what resources helped me to get through to the other side. May that be faith-based or other just um, resources. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. I know one of the big things that Aaron and I talked about as well and you guys talked about was really having a strong community to come around you regardless of the situation. Um, so if you don't mind, we'll put your number down below. Uh, you can even say it right now if you want or an email, but we're, we're going to go ahead and list that down in the descriptions. Um, people will be able to get a hold of you directly and uh, hopefully get in contact. And who knows, you might meet some new friends. who knows, you might meet some
2: new friends. Yeah, absolutely. I would say my best ways of contact are probably um, through my Instagram account, which is carolyn's underscore life um, and that direct messaging and things like that. Uh, I'm hoping to eventually share a little bit more of our story um, highlights in that so that people have those resources available as well.
0: For sure. For sure. We'll check her out on Instagram. If you got any questions about process, anything that you've heard on the podcast, uh, just go ahead and reach out to Carolyn directly. Um, if you're having trouble finding her, DM us and we'll take care of it. So thanks again.